630 Chad Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins. Weekdays at 6 on 630 Chad. Dry settle again. Shoots and scores. There's 50 from the right circle. Harris in the pocket. He's throwing and he's going down the rail. He's got a man open and it's complete. And he's going the distance. Inside the five. Touchdown Eskimos. Ricky Collins Jr. Edmonton's home for breaking news on your favorite teams. This is Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on the voice of your Edmonton Oilers and Eskimos. 6.30 Chad. Well, to quote Kevin Spacey from American Beauty, this is the highlight of my day. Though I'm hosting a radio show, not doing what he was. Thanks a lot for tuning in tonight. Blue Jays leading Texas 5-1. They're in the third inning. The Edmonton Eskimos back at practice today as they get ready to take on the Toronto Argos. Road game for the green and gold. We have it on 6.30, Ched, on Friday, 4 o'clock for the countdown to kick off the game at 5.30. We'll uh, break down some of the negatives and positives for the Eskimos coming out of the win over Ottawa on Friday with Blake Dermott between 6.30 and 7. The season over. For the Edmonton prospects, what is next for them, both on and off the field? Their managing partner, Patrick Cassidy, will check in tonight. There are some uh, questions about who's going to operate Remax Field next season. Patrick Cassidy wants to keep doing it. Uh, The city is taking other proposals. We could be about a month or so away from that decision, so Patrick will uh, touch on that. He's been pushing for an extended lease, but the city wants to hear from uh, other parties, and there are other interested people involved. And uh, in a few minutes, we will get to Mike Arsenault from our uh, global news station in Toronto about the big win for Bianca Andreescu at the Rogers Cup, first Canadian to win that tournament, to win on Canadian soil in 50 years. And I was mentioning this with uh, to Kellen or to uh, Brad and, and Morgan before the show started. He also got to be a ball man. I, I think that's what he called it, a ball man. He's too old to be a ball boy. Well, maybe, I, don't, I don't know, ball person? Sounds kind of weird. Well, ball man might sound kind of weird as well, depending on the context. But Mike's going to be on the show uh, to talk about her victory and about being a ball. So you know what I'm talking about, Kellen. You know, the serve goes into the net. The, the Usually a kid runs across, picks up the ball. Yeah. The player's going to serve. Somebody bounces them the balls or puts the mm-hmm. balls in their racket, gets them the towel. I think that's an important part they're of it. Uh, yeah, they're usually pretty unnoticeable 99% of the time. It's the 1% of the time that they screw up that you notice them, and they usually fail Pretty spectacular. Well, we'll ask him about that. And that'll be our off-topic topic tonight. If you could be a non-athlete participant in a sporting event, what would you like to be? And 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 not a and not a ref. So you're not a ref. You're not a player. Would you like to be a ball person? Would you like to be a caddy? Would you like to uh, carry the the scoring uh, card? This this the uh, you know the golf people that carry the the, the mobile scorecard thing. What what would you like to do? Would you like to drive the zamboni? You can text us at six thirty six thirty. I know to what be... you'd like to be. You'd like to be. You'd like to ring the bell. That's it. WWE. You want to be? Yes. Do they call that the bell man? Uh, the, the bell person? The it's... beller? The bell ringer? The, <laughs> the timekeeper? The timekeeper? And I'll do it for MMA why do as they well. Need a, it doesn't why matter. Why do they need a timekeeper in WWE? The matches just go on until they're over. Or boxing, even too. I just want to sit ringside and ring a bell. That'd be amazing. How was uh, summer session, by the way? Oh, it was a great session. Was, it was what's it a, called a again? Series of sa- a, sla- a series of slams. Summer, for summer did you slam. go? Slam. 
Were you in Toronto this weekend? No. Oh, okay. No, I watched at home. If I was in Did Toronto, I'd probably be still it? on my way back here. Is so. that on the old pay-per-view? That was on, on the old uh, PPV, yep. Okay, so in, please in 10 seconds or less. Yes. Highlights of SummerSlam so non-wrestling people can fake through a conversation with their wrestling friends at work or coworkers. Uh you know what? It was surprisingly overwhelming. And a name or two? Eh, Bray Wyatt. All right. Bray Wyatt. Thank you, Kellen. So now, there you go. If you have wrestling friends at work, we, we, we couldn't get to you last night, but if they're talking about SummerSlam at work, you can just be like, yeah, how about that Bray Wyatt? And then they'll be like, oh, wow, yeah. you're right up. You're uh, right up to date. And then Google from here on out. <laughs> Uh, this texter says, uh, Adam says, I would like to be a stick boy. This texter says, the oil boy for girls beach volleyball, which I don't think is a job. And James says, I would like to host a sports talk show on 630 Chet. Well, that was once my dream, James. So, you know, it, it could come true for you. All right. Uh, we're going to bring Mike Arsenal on the tennis in a couple minutes. He got to be the ball man. Uh, the Edmonton Eskimos, and I'm going to be going over this with Blake Dermott between 6.30 and 7. They are first in the Canadian Football League in net offense per game at over 420 yards. They are fourth in points scored. They are not turning the yards into points. And this concerns me because it's not a one-off. It's happening week after week. But they're staying positive, and receiver Natea Jay says it's only a matter of time before the offense breaks out. We, we focus on it. We know uh, that it's an issue for us, and, and we're just as mad about it as anybody else. And we wish we could have put all those points up, but you know we know we're a good offense, and that's that's the number one thing right now. We know we're a good offense. We know your yards are there. We know Trevor's uh, very efficient. You know he's going to get the ball in everybody's hands in the right places. And there's a lot of great things going on, but it's just one a, a little thing that's you know kind of holding us back, and uh, and it's up to us to correct it. All right. On the other side of the ball, the Eskimos' defense is exceptional. They are absolutely exceptional. Now, the Ottawa moved the ball on them in the first half, 286 yards. In the second half, the Eskimos only allowed 100 yards of offense, 50 of them on the final drive. And, yes, it got tense, but they held. The players did their job. Defensive coordinator Philip Lawley believed in them. In fact, he called the same play on the final three plays of that drive. I was proud of them because, uh, you know, we made the same three calls down here and we talked about it as coaches and everything else. If it got down to that part of the ball game, we was going to... I didn't plan on calling it three straight times, but when I watched us and I kept screaming at the front to keep the quarterback in the pocket, make sure they went speed to power and push the pocket, which they did. I looked out there in the first rep and they pushed it in on him, uh, made him have to deliver the ball where we wanted it delivered, right? So I turned and called it again and asked for the same thing, and we got the same. And, and then the third call, I was really going with another call. And, uh, and I said, no. I said, if we stopped them twice doing this, they, the kids would never let me down if I made another call. So, so we went back with it. And, you know, it worked out. And they, but they played hard, and they made the adjustments, like you said. We went in at half. We deleted a bunch of things that we didn't think we needed anymore that was uh, the game. Once we saw what they were doing and trying to attack us and how they were, we changed some calls. Um, 
far as how we delivered the calls because they were picking up on some of that. So, uh, you know, they, they adjusted well and come back out and played a pretty good second half. Nice to be on the winning end of a, a last-ditch jump ball. Uh, oh, absolutely, because it tears your heart out to be on the other end. I've been there, too. You know, and like I tell them, it's a process, you know, to to be the best. you got to go through some of them things. And I just got through covering that with them probably a week ago. I said, you're going to be in a situation where things are not going great. Uh, you know, and so it looks like it's falling apart. And I said, then that's when I'm going to tell if you've really – you know, maturing as a good defense or not when you face that. So. Philip Lawley, the defensive coordinator for your Edmonton Eskimos. I love how he calls them the kids when talking about his players. Well, he's been doing this long enough. He can call them kids. The kids got the job done. More on the Eskimos with Blake Dermott after the 6.30 news. We will touch on the tennis and Mike Arsenault's ballman experience next on Inside Sports. <laughs> Hi, this is Trevor Harris of the Edmonton Eskimos, and you're listening to Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on 630 Chick. Eskimos 5-3, and three, Calgary 5-3, and three, Riders 5-3, and three, Winnipeg 6-2. and two. Nice and close, nice and competitive on top of the CFL West Division. More on that with uh, Blake Dermott coming up between 6.30 and 7. All right. Tennis history in Toronto over the weekend to talk about that and more from Global Toronto, Mike Arsenault. Mike, welcome to Inside Sports. How are you doing? Thanks, Reed. Looking forward to this. Well, it's great to have you on the show. Man, you had a, a pretty fun week, and it was a pretty fun week for Canadian tennis fans, for Canadian sports fans. Obviously, we want to get into the, to the big story and the big victory, but i got to ask you about an experience you got to have, and this is one of those things... Every fan has watched a tennis match and noticed these people and thought, man, I wonder what's, what's that like? You got, you got, well, you're not a kid, but you got to be a, a, a well, were you a ball kid? Were you an honorary ball kid? You got to tell me about this experience. I, 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 uh, I consider it a ball man, Reed. I'm, I'm a little too mature to be a ball kid. But yeah, I want to do a story on the Rogers Cup ball kids because as, as you mentioned, you see them on court in every single tournament. They got a lot of TV coverage. So I wanted to get an idea of what exactly is involved in being a ball kid. So I reached out to uh, Tennis Canada, and they actually put me through a bit of a training and allowed me to be a ball man during an actual set during a qualifying match last Sunday. Okay, so what was the... How should I word this? What was the most unexpected thing about it, right? Because sometimes you try something for the first time and you think you might have it down and then there's an element where you're thinking, oh, I I did not realize that was going to happen or that was going to feel that way. What was that for you? It was definitely the towel. because, like, I'm I'm a big tennis guy, so I I found myself kind of getting distracted just watching these top players, some of the top female tennis players in the world, just watching kind of their strokes and their footwork. And I was okay kind of knowing when I had to – keep the balls either on my side, obviously when my player was serving, or get the balls to the ball kids at the net so they could get them to the other side. But when you have the towel, I mean, the players, it was very hot in Toronto all week long. When they want that towel, they just kind of give you a quick point. You have to run it out to them, and it can't be folded read. You have to spread it out, present it to them, they take it from you, and they don't even make eye contact. It was actually kind of a dehumanizing experience because they just kind of, wave you over with with a with an arm and then you give them the towel and they don't really make eye contact with you and they just kind of throw it at you and they kind of send you on the way back and especially if they're not playing that well it can get a little awkward at times okay did you ever get caught unaware or miss a ball or or delay the, the play in any way 
I did actually, so my first 30 seconds on court, my player on my side was serving, so I had the balls in my hand, and she kind of holds a racket out, and I just put one ball on a racket. She kind of gives me another nod. I put another one. I had four. I didn't realize you're supposed to put all four balls on her racket. Then she picks the two that she wants to keep. So she gave me a bit of a look, and then the other player, when she was on my side serving, I was a little bit slow throwing the balls uh, to the ball kids at the at the net, so she kind of had to help me out there. But otherwise, I think I made it through unscathed, and there was no uh, strongly worded emails to my Global News account afterwards. So <laughs> I consider it a win. Well, that's good. And it's one of those jobs no one notices unless you do something wrong, right? Exactly. Well, it's like an umpire, right? You never want to notice an umpire in a baseball game. Same thing with a ball kid. You don't want to be noticed at all because... If you aren't noticed and you are doing your job, it just looks a little bit different for me because I had probably six inches and 50 pounds on both players, so I was a little bit uh, hard to hide there on the court during that match. Well, that's cool. You got to do that. Mike uh, Arsenault joining us from Global in Toronto talking about his experience as a ball man and, of course, the, the Rogers Cup. Okay, so th- this, is, this, is, this is a big moment. I, I mean, Bianca Andreescu wins the tournament. It maybe wasn't in the... The, the fashion that you might envision it. It didn't come down to a, a dramatic third set or anything like that. But tell me a little bit about the just the vibe of, of, of her winning and, and some of the reaction you've seen. And, and, and does the way it happened sort of, um, you know, change the way it's going to be perceived here? It was a little anticlimactic, but, I mean, the buzz in the stadium. So I was there both for his first match against Shinya Bouchard, and I was there um, yesterday for the final. And the buzz among the crowd before the match yesterday was definitely palpable because, again, you have Serena Williams, arguably the greatest female tennis player of all time, against Bianca Andreescu. She's broken to the top 20 now. She's number 14 in the world with that win. And it was just such – it was like deflating a balloon when we saw – the medical team come out to talk to Serena and then they announced that she was retiring. I mean, I was disappointed and I was paid to be there for global. I can't imagine the secondary ticket market was $800 per ticket yesterday morning. So can you imagine being uh, someone who shelled out perhaps 1600 to $3,200 for two to four tickets for only 19 minutes of action? And there's there, there's no obviously like there's no provision for well I guess if it's on the secondary market there wouldn't be but if you use tickets you got straight from the tournament itself it's that's just part of the risk of having a ticket. Unfortunately, like generally, what they do is you don't buy matches uh, for a tennis tournament for specific matches you buy sessions. So either you have the day session and a night session, so you might get anywhere from two to four matches. The only problem is on Sunday there's only one match left, so you have the women's final. I mean, the ticket holders who were there yesterday could stick around for the doubles final so that your ticket gets you both the women's final and the doubles final. But let's be honest, everyone was there to watch Bianca take on Serena. Okay. So, well, this is interesting. And, and we're, we're getting more and more names in, in Canadian tennis over the last, you know, I guess five to ten years when you factor in Raonic and Shapovalov and, and Bouchard and what some other a- athletes have been doing. Uh, I mean, obviously, you, you follow the sport very closely. I, I mean, in my lifetime, I can't think of a better time for Canadian tennis, and this is pretty exciting. It really is. I actually had an opportunity to uh, interview Daniel Nestor, and I got on court with him as well a little bit last year, and I talked to him ab- about this. He said uh, there was a point during the 90s where they had, um, I think, five or six guys in the top 100 or top 150, which is kind of a higher level than what we're at right now. But in terms of 
players within the top 20, within the top 50 in the world. This is something that has never been seen before, both on the male side of tennis and also definitely on the female side. I mean, again, Bianca was the, the first Canadian to win our national tournament since 1969. So what are your expectations going into the U.S. Open? Is this, is this dangerous now? You're, you're, you read these, well, she's got to be a favorite, or, you know, she'll, she's ranked this, but she should be able to do this. I, I mean, look, it's because I'm always hesitant about overdoing the expectations. You know what I mean? Like, it's, a, it's one good tournament. It's promising, but I don't want to come on this show tonight and say, oh, yeah, well, she, she should win it all, the U.S. Open, the next Grand Slam, right? I mean, what are you thinking going in now to Flushing Meadow? I mean, I think she's definitely on the shore list just in terms of the fact that the U.S. Open is a hardcore tournament. She's shown that she has one of the best games in the world on the hardcore, considering how she competed and won at Indian Wells and then here at the Rogers Cup. And I think the biggest thing, she was off for two months from the French Open to the Rogers Cup. She didn't play one match, and she basically ran the table. She won the championship. So she's going to take two weeks off, which I think is a smart decision. She withdrew from the Cincinnati event this week. She'll take some time to rest and recuperate and then start training so she peaks again for the U.S. Open. I'm not saying she's the favorite. Uh, I believe Vegas has her as the ninth ninth ranked uh, player going into the U.S. Open. But she's definitely, I would say, depending on the draw, she's definitely on the short list of players who may necessarily may not win the U.S. Open, but she could definitely go deep into the second week. Well, it's exciting to watch, Mike, and I know for me, I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a middle-aged Canadian man, and I can remember where you're thrilled to have a Canadian finish eighth in the Olympics, and you're thrilled to have, uh, you know, Dave Barr in contention at a U.S. Open, and then you don't hear much about him. I, I mean, I, I just feel like we're in an era now where you look at some of the golfers, some of the tennis players, Canadian basketball players, that, yeah, we're going to be strong in hockey and curling and all those types of sports, but I, I feel like, I hope we're getting to the point where we're really becoming a more well-rounded sports nation, and I, I just think that's great for the country. Uh, definitely, and if you just think back to the 2010 Olympics, right, what, what was the theme? Own the podium. And if you look at all these these kids now who are late teens, early 20s, that was their formative years when we kind of switched to just being happy Canadians to be there and competing to actually we want to win. So that, I think, almost kind of changed our mindset in regards to athletics. Again, yeah, we're always going to dominate the hockey and the curling, but now we have the mindset that, yeah, we can compete with any other country on earth at any sport if we put in the resources and give the players and the athletes the resources necessary, the time necessary, and also the coaching. Like a lot of money has been put in, not just in tennis, but in all sports really across the country for top-notch coaching. And really we're seeing the spoils of that right now with some of the young talent we have across the country in Canadian athletics. Yeah, well said, well said. Well, thanks for giving us a first-hand account of uh, not just Bianca's victory, but your incredible work as a, as a ball man. I encourage people to, to check out that video too. You had a lot of fun doing that. Hey, hope we can have you on the show again. Anytime, Reed. Thanks a lot. Mike Arsenault from Global News Toronto. Nice chat with him. Got to be a ball man. James says on the text line, remember the Seinfeld episode when Kramer was a ball man? Classic. Very classic. And actually, Mike referenced that in the story he did for Global. I also asked you what non-player or official job would you like to have at a sporting event? This texter says caddy 100%. And another texter says, I would like to be 
the video goal judge for an Oilers Ducks playoff series. Edmonton Oilers. You're listening to Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on Oilers Radio, 6:30. Chad. Well, that was a good discussion with Mike Arsenal from Global in Toronto, and uh, Richard agreeing with something Mike said. Richard writing in the change happened at the 2010 Olympics when Canada said no more Mr. Nice Guy and went for the podium. Ever since then, Canada has had a new attitude in international sports. Nice to see was getting sick and tired of being the world's doormat and little brother and the little engine that couldn't. That is from Richard. I think you got a great point. And you know what this country needs? I mean, we're nice Canadians. We're polite, but sometimes it's okay to have a little bit of swagger. Sometimes it's okay to go out there and say, this is my championship, that is my medal, and I'm going to take it from you or prevent you from getting it. And I think we have uh, often had that in hockey, and I think we are getting it in other sports. And it starts with the, you know, the Nashes of the world or having Canadian teams here, like having, having the Raptors and, and seeing players excel in other sports. And then you start to believe you can do it and getting the coaching. I, I think the, the coaching is, is the key. And then, you know, a lot of times these players who were high-level athletes themselves get into coaching or managing or somehow facilitating the sport. We've seen Steve Nash do that in basketball. And I think it pays off. It doesn't always happen as quickly as you like, but it definitely can happen. And I think it's happening in a lot of Canadian sports. All right, here in Edmonton. The Eskimos improving to 5-3. and three. David Beard leans over the ball to get set to deliver it to Trevor Harris. He takes it, turns, gives it to C.J. Gable. Gable goes to the left side. He's got a first down. He's got a touchdown, Eskimos. C.J. Gable takes the first pie out of the oven. Force a nervous situation here for the Eskimos. Third and one. Down by two from the one-yard line to take the lead. Trevor Harris goes under center. There's the snap. Harris does not make it. No, he doesn't. Ball's loose. He does not make it, and as he was reaching out to try and stretch, the ball comes free, but it's another turnover on downs in a short yardage play for the Eskimos. From the shotgun, the ball's going to go to Gable. Gable, touchdown Eskimos! C.J. Gable's got a pair, and the Eskimos have the lead. The defense has been pretty good all night. They can win it for the Eskimos here with a play. Davis takes the snap and drops. He'll throw, and it is incomplete to the end zone. Josh Johnson with the knockdown. And Josh Johnson has been really, really good this year for the green and gold. They win that 16-12, so you heard the highlights and a, and a low light or two in that package. I will tell you this. The Eskimos have nine turnovers on downs this season. That is the most in the CFL. On third and short, which is third and two or less, they are 13 for 20. Only 65% conversion rate. Only Toronto is worse. They're only uh, one for four in their attempts this season. I'm Blake I'm Blake Dermott jumping on the show now. I'm going to dive right in with you there, Blake. Why are they so bad on third and short? Or, or maybe it's just Friday's game making it worse, but there were a couple other uh, failed third and short plays this season too. Well, you know, I think that if the, uh, if the Eskimos knew that, they wouldn't be so bad on third and short. Um, they... Um, 
it's it's tough to understand how uh, a team can be as good offensively and can convert at the rate that the Eskimos have on you know their second down conversions or you know first down conversions and a team that can can throw for. 340 yards uh, passing in a game, and uh, and then rush for another 116 yards, but then they can't get that one yard. And um, the only thing that I can say is that uh, it's got to come down to, and the coaches will say this, execution. I think the plays are there, but the players, for whatever reason, at that point, just haven't been able to execute the blocks. Execute, you know, there must be some a combination of. A bus where somebody is is not doing the right thing, or you know, I, I because they've tried a number of different things, and it isn't always about what the defense does. You'll remember, I think it was a game against Calgary where they were third and long. Uh, I'm trying to remember who it was, and and they they went into shotgun formation and they threw a ball out to Kenny Stafford and he dropped it, and Kenny Stafford well, catches Montre- Montreal, yeah, Montreal, third, third and yeah. two, he just flat out dropped it. Yeah, they yeah. had the play had to play uh you know it was there uh if he catches it he might even go in and score um there are uh instances where you know the the you know i i made this question uh or question this in the game in this last game twice uh there were two instances once they went in shotgun and um and and you've got um you've got your uh, arguably your your best run blocking offensive lineman playing I believe he was on the uh, right side, right guard. And uh, they ran the ball to the left side two times, one on the quarterback sneak uh, down on the one-yard line and the other one in the shotgun formation that went to the, to the left side and, uh, um, and was stopped because of penetration in the backfield. Uh, so, so and, and again, you know, when you talk about the, the, the plays that are called and when teams line up, on virtually every play, there's an opportunity to change the play. So uh, I, I don't know if if what is called uh, from the sidelines is actually the play that is run when it's on the field. But certainly there are times when you want to take a look at what you're playing against and you want to take advantage of that. And you also want to look at your own personnel and take advantage of that. And I, I think that there have been instances where that hasn't happened this year. In Friday's game specifically, Blake, just to, to wrap up that point, obviously on the one failed conversion, they actually did convert it, but uh, but Harris fumbled. The There were the two plays out of the shotgun, and that drives people crazy, want to run, want to pass. And on the goal line, the Eskimos at that point were down to their third-string fullback, and that might have affected the way things gone because McCarty was out and, and Green got hurt during the game. So there there may have been a little uh, somebody in the game there who wasn't used to that situation that could have hurt the play. But but it was frustrating to watch. Blake, the other thing about the offense. Now, I'm, I'm a little worried, pr- probably more than you, but I won't put words in your mouth, because to me it is not a one-off that the Eskimos are getting yards and not points. We're, we're eight games into the season, and, and we've seen this a few times now where they outgain the other team, they outpossess the other team, they run more plays, and they either lose or, or barely win. And, hey, a win is a win. I, I have a personal thing. Don't critique victory. Uh, but sometimes you get a little worried when you feel like it's uh, as tense as it was on Friday when maybe it, it shouldn't have been. So... Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think even though they lead the league in yards, to me it comes down to points, and, and, and they're not finishing, so I'm getting a little worried. 
Uh, well, Reed, I, I, I think there's an awful lot of people who feel the same way you do. And, uh, uh, you know, the, if you look at every game that the Eskimos lost this year, those were games that they, they could have won. And uh, with respect to, uh, you know, when they played Winnipeg and they had to kick seven field goals. And, and uh, um, those were all instances where they couldn't, when they got down close to the goal line or in that red zone area, they couldn't convert to be able to get uh, seven points. And if they do that one time, that game is a different game. Similar thing happened in Montreal. Similar thing happened in Calgary. So this is, this is a pattern. Um, and uh, I guess it is still not the halfway point of the year. Uh, I would be a lot more concerned if the Eskimos weren't getting yards and not getting points. Fair enough, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, right. so they are, they, they are offensively doing uh, the right things, but it, it, it almost is it, two things happen. You either have to, you know, when you, the Eskimos are the best team between the 20 yard lines right now, obviously. They, uh, they move the ball very well, but then something happens to the psyche when the players get into that area. And I don't know if it becomes, uh, it, can be, it can either be two ways. It can become, uh, uh, you, you, you want to break the string, you want to you uh, do better, you want to perform, you want to get the points, and, and you put pressure on yourselves and you make mistakes. Um, and, and instead of being relaxed and in control all the way down the field, they have to maintain that mentality when they get into the red zone. And I think, I think it's become a situation for them, and, and this is something they'll, they'll work their way out of or they have to work their way out of or this season's going to end with people questioning that. But they have to get to that point where they feel comfortable and confident in, in what the play is called and executing the play. And right now it seems like they're squeezing the ball too tight, they're you know they're uh, you know they're too tense when they're in their stance. Whatever it is, you know they're because the mistakes are happening and and I can't explain that. Um, and I'm sure that the coaches, if they if they, I remember when we talked to Coach Moss before last game, the day before the game, and and he said, boy, if I could figure that out, then we wouldn't have any issues. So it is something that is uh, that is within the Eskimo locker room night right now. And I believe that for for that offensive team, a lot of it is between the ears. Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting discussion, and that's hard to measure, right? You can't measure confidence or belief for those words that you know you use and Rob Brown uses on hockey broadcasts all the time, which sometimes can separate a, a good team from a, a great team. I, I want to ask you another question about the offense, and I, and I'm I sit with uh, you know in my in my season's tickets for Eskimos games, a lot of people around me that have had tickets for you know twenty plus years too, and there's frustration there too with some of the play calling the passes that are going straight sideways or short passes to stationary receivers. Now, even though the Eskimos got a lot of yards, especially in the first half, uh, I, I think there were a lot of those types of types of plays. Like, are those there to spread out the defense horizontally as well as vertically? Are those there to set up a play like the one to Daniels that got negated by the penalty? Like, like obviously they're not calling plays intentionally to gain fewer than five yards, right? So, so what is kind of the, the goal of those, those plays? What's the thinking behind some of those? Well, I remember a couple of games ago we were talking with Coach Moss uh, uh, you know, the day before the game and we were talking about what had happened the, the week prior and, and the Eskimos came out and, you know, we talked about them being able to, you know, CJ or their their offenses had run the ball consistently, and uh, and had run the ball very well for the previous two or three weeks, and uh, and then we get into that game and they run the ball like eight times and I think Gable had something like less than twenty yards or right around twenty yards and and 
And the thought was, was uh, the question was, well, how come he didn't run very much? And he said, well, we went over that, and they had called something like 18 or 19 plays that were run plays that were then switched to passing plays. And, and what people have to understand, and people that get frustrated with, with what happens on the field, they, a lot of times it's, not, it's because they don't have a clear understanding of, I mean, you can watch the game and you can see the game and you see what happens and the plays are unsuccessful. But, but if you send a play in, you've got to remember you've got 20 seconds to send a play in. You send a play in with the thought and belief that the defense is going to do something. And, and, and you hope that and, and just by studying and watching film and everything else that you're going to have a very high percentage of, of guessing right. And so you, you send the play in and then the play, the defense lines up into something that you're, you can't be successful with that play. So that's why I say every play has sort of an automatic or something they can switch to, an audible that they can switch to. And, uh, and that's what happens in games. And so if, you, if they're taking away certain patterns that are going to go vertical on you, then you have to go horizontal. And every play that is designed by a football team is not designed to go five yards. You're, you're hoping that you can get the ball if it's called right against the right defense. You're going to score in every play. But obviously that doesn't happen. So, so the design of certain plays is to go, to go horizontal because you can't go vertical because of the way the defense is set up. I know that's frustrating for folks, but would you rather them throw the ball and it be picked off or knocked down? Would you rather have five yards or six yards on a completion than have zero and be second and long? And we know what happens in this league when you're second and long all the time. We saw that against Calgary. Um, they, if you're second and long, defenses know they can just drop off to 10 yards and, and take away everything deep and then make you throw shallow. And that's what teams do sometimes. And so football is a very calculated game. It's a very strategic game. And you, you, to answer your point, too, about do you set plays up, absolutely. You'll run plays that will set things up for later in the game. You'll, 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 you'll run a play to get a desired response to the defense so that the next time you run that same familiar-looking play, you can take advantage of something that they have shown you, and it's, it, it can some some days it goes well, and some days it doesn't. And uh, and uh, it, like I said before, the Eskimo, I, I would be much happier, or I'm much happier seeing the Eskimos get yards on plays than I am and them not getting yards. And uh, you know that was a little frustrating in the game against Calgary. The first half they didn't do very much. The second half uh, they did considerably better, and even in this last game, they didn't do very much in this first in this first half but they came out in the second half and were able to make adjustments. And I think that that's one thing that this coaching staff and this offense has done very well this year is make adjustments. Uh, Blake, defense is doing well. We will we'll, uh, just kind of give them, I think, a passing grade this week. And I played a great clip from uh, Philip Lawley about how he trusted them on that last drive and called the same play three times in a row and, and they executed. I do want to ask you this because we usually talk about some CFL topics as well. Uh, we've talked about weather delays before and weather you have played in. I don't know if you've ever had a game that you didn't finish because of the weather, but uh, Saskatchewan played uh, almost three quarters and, and got a win against Montreal. That That's a new one for me, and I've been watching this league a long time. Well, I, I'd never seen that before either, um, and I, um, I'm a little bit surprised by it, but part of me is, uh, you know, with the league really uh, taking positive steps towards player safety, and, of course, fan safety. I don't know how long that weather system, when we were looking in the press box, uh, we were looking at the weather system that was, uh, you know, in the, uh, on the computer. And it looked like it was going to stay there for a while. But, you know, when you look at the Eskimo game, which ended at about 11 o'clock, and they called that game at like 10.06 local time, 
because of the rule that says that if when the game is halted, uh, it has to resume play within an hour. And if it isn't doesn't resume play within an hour, I think is the rule that that the game will then be awarded to the team that is ahead if more than 50% of the game is played. Yeah. But it just seemed to me that we were going past 11 o'clock. Why, why wasn't that game going past 11 o'clock? So I almost want to think that that's something that the league has got to really take a look at because, you know, fans are going to sit there. They're, they've paid their money. They're going to stay there, and they're going to be at the game. We saw what happened in Winnipeg last year, how long that was delayed. Yep. And, uh, and people were still there at the end of the game. And, I, and I, I, that one was a little bit surprising to me. I was a little disappointed that the game was called. Yeah, I mean, you, you're right. You got to keep player and fan safety. And I know a lot of people say, "Well, bring them back at noon the next day." I, I don't think that's practical, but you, you'd like them to wait a little longer. Uh, I'm going to throw one more at. Did you see this Antonio Brown story with his helmet? Yeah, I, I, I've been. I've followed it a bit. Okay, so I think the latest is he's going to go to camp and maybe. Like what, what? Didn't on the weekend he'd say he would just quit football if he couldn't wear his? Yeah, he, said he wasn't going to play. He had to wear that, forced to wear that helmet. So what do you what do you think of this? Is this just absurd, or do you get a connection to a piece of equipment to some extent? Well, when I played, there was a certain type of helmet that I played with. It was called uh, it was called a bike helmet, and I virtually every every year that I ever played, I wore a bike helmet. And uh, one year they said you couldn't wear bike helmets. And part of the reason was because I think the league was sponsored by Rydell. So they were all switching to Rydell helmets. And I had a heck of a time because of the way the shape of my, my, my head, the ear pads didn't go all the way around my ears. They would, they, my ears were too far back in my head and it didn't fit properly and it didn't fit right. And I believe that I was able to wear a bike, but they had to put Rydell stickers on the thing. But it's different now in that, this was, uh, and the reason why we didn't wear bikes anymore was because, because they they weren't as safe as the Rydell helmets. And if it was a player safety thing, which wasn't an issue back then, I mean that wasn't like it is now. I don't think I would have been given that choice. And I completely understand the league's movement to being. I mean, head health is the biggest problem that football has, or most sports, not just football, but all sports. And uh, and a guy uh, like Antonio Brown is making a unsafe decision to do that. And, uh, and I think it becomes a very selfish de- decision for his teammates because if he goes out wearing his old helmet, and he's played for a long time using yeah. that helmet or a helmet like that, if he goes out and gets hurt because he's not wearing proper equipment, that would be like going out and uh, playing goal in the NHL and, uh, and not having a face mask as far as I'm concerned. So he's, I, that's a little bit different than the situation that I had. But I, 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 I can understand his, his comfort level with the equipment that he had because, because I kind of went through that myself. All right. Blake, always fun to have you on the show. A lot to talk about with the Eskimos this season. They'll give us the latest chapter Friday when they go to Toronto. Take care, buddy. Okay, thanks a lot, Reed. That is Blake Dermott, our Eskimos analyst here on 630 Chad checking in. So uh, I, I love how he breaks down the play calling, everything that goes into calling and executing a play. And he as he's like he makes a good point. Like I'm concerned they're getting the yards but not the points. But as he said, imagine if they were getting neither. Then <laughs> then you'd be then you'd be really upset. They are five and three on the season. The Blue Jays are up 13-1 on Texas in the fifth. Quick timeout inside sports on Chad. You're listening to Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on Edmonton Sports Leader, 630 Chad. All right, good to have you tuning in tonight. FC Edmonton tied for first 
in the fall part of the schedule in the Canadian Premier League, so that is very good. They are 3-1-2. and two. They beat Pacific 3-1 on Saturday. They will be at Cavalry FC on Friday and home to Valor FC on Monday. Cavalry is the team they're tied with. They are 3-0-2. Oh, the Edmonton Stingers lost a couple of games last week, Thursday and Friday, but still looking uh, very good going into the postseason tournament. That's coming up, uh, what are we, about 12 days away from that. The Stingers will play their final regular season game at Fraser Valley on Thursday. Edmonton 13-6, and Fraser Valley struggling at 4-15. and The Edmonton Prospects season ended in Game 3 in Okotoks on Saturday with a 5-0 loss. That was after the Prospects rallied to beat Okotoks 5-4 in 10 innings on Friday. Prospects owner... Patrick Cassidy joining us after the 7 o'clock news. The NBA schedule out now for the entire season. You already knew that the Raptors were hosting the Celtics on Christmas Day. The opener for the Raptors will be October 22nd. They will host the New Orleans Pelicans on December 11th. Kawhi Leonard will return to Toronto with the Los Angeles Clippers. The Raptors visit the Clippers on November 11th. The Golden State Warriors play their only game in Toronto on March 16th. Calgary Flames defenseman Yuso Valimaki, torn ACL, suffered training on the weekend. Flames first round pick, 16th overall in 2017. A lot of promise for him. Did get three points in 24 games last season, but uh, he's out long term now with a torn ACL injury. And former Eskimos receiver Bryant Mitchell, tough luck for him with Tampa Bay in the NFL playing a preseason game over the weekend. He suffered a torn Achilles. So uh, that's a rough one for Brian Mitchell. That will likely cost him the season. You can text 630-630, phone number 780-496-0063. We will have the Eskimos Coaches Show with Jason Moss and Morley Scott from 7.30 until 8 tonight. As I mentioned, we'll bring in Prospects Managing Partner Patrick Cassidy after the 7 o'clock news. going to be a fun week here. On Inside Sports, uh, we're going to preview the Canadian Derby coming up on the weekend. We're going to preview the Edmonton Marathon coming up on the weekend. Chicago Blackhawks prospect and Fort Saskatchewan native Kirby Dock scheduled to join us later on as well. A lot to get to, but Patrick Cassidy when we get back. Six thirty, Chad. Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins, weekdays at six on Six Thirty, Chad.